0: All right, Tristan, so let's talk about Blockim AI. We recently got in touch with your team. You guys are doing something really cool. What you exactly do is you give a trustworthiness score to every ETH wallet. So let's say if I put my address over there, prashanbugga.eth, then you can say it, that, hey, this this particular ETH wallet, it seems like it has 90, 97%, 95% score, and you can send assets to it. They haven't covered any scam, stuff like that. Let's get into this. I think the very first thing that came to my mind was how do you even figure out that what is this trustworthiness score? What are the things behind the scenes that you calculate to come up with a score?
1: Yeah, great, great question. I'm going to do, uh, do my best considering I'm not the technical co-founder. So basically there's, there's three layers. The most important layer is the AI layer, but I'll talk about the other two layers first, which are kind of the most basic layers. Uh, the first one is the blacklist and the whitelist. So that's a list of known scams and then a list of known good projects, that's kind of the obvious one. Those are all across the internet. That's pretty easy to do for, for any tool. Uh, the other is Simulation, which is now native to Binance. And basically Simulation projects the, the, or actually it's native to Coinbase now, it projects the transaction before you complete the transaction. So it lets you know what you're agreeing to before you click that mint button. And oftentimes the way, most common way scams are kind of done is it'll drain your entire wallet, but actually it's advertised that it's only taking 0.25 Or whatever the supposed amount is it'll do something different from that like taking all your uh, crypto which has happened to me before that's a second layer and then the third layer is the artificial intelligence and there's a rule based and there's a self-learning ai the rule based is basically different principles or different kind of trends we found in known scams a really obvious one is like okay let's just say there's three transactions in a row that were all wallet draining transactions because that's what the ai is doing it's looking at your transactions and then it's it's evaluating your transactions and then giving you a score based off of, with the self-learning AI, how well you match a scammer. So we fed the AI a bunch of scammers, a bunch of blacklist projects, and it kind of looked at the trends between those blacklists and said like, okay, here are the trends between them and here's how well you match those trends. So that's what the self-learning AI does. And then the rule base is a different principle. So it's, it's, it's stuff like the example I just gave. And there's many different kinds of trends we found in scams. And then we just made a giant list of them. And then we fed that to the rule-based um, AI. And then all three of these layers kind of work together to make them essentially like at this point, probably the most cutting edge security for at least socially engineered scams. So it's kind of all the different layers working together um, to, to create that trust score.
0: Very interesting you mentioned about blacklist, you basically have information or we basically have information about what the transaction activity of a, of a scammer spammer looks like. And you have basically feed that into your system. What does the activity look like for a scammer?
1: Yeah. You mean like, what is a scammer actually doing? That makes you like, how do you know it's a scammer? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the most obvious one is if someone's actually draining your wallet, but then like there could be say, uh, vulnerabilities in the contract, for example. So let's just say there's a backdoor in the contract that can let the um, owner of the contract burn all your assets at any point. That's something that is going to affect your trust score. Let's just say there's someone who's interacting with a lot of wallets who are scam wallets. And we're kind of seeing that this person for some reason keeps uh, connecting with all these um, scams or they're sending crypto to that scam wallet, right? That's kind of shady. Um, so it's it's things like that, where we're, we're looking at not only what you're doing in your transactions, but how you're connecting to other people within the network. So how, how often are you interacting with someone who we see as definitely a scam? How are these different wallets interconnected? And one thing that we're about to kind of build on top of this is we're about to build some social, uh, some social data into this. So like a, an example of this would be, let's just say your IP address is connected to a, a, uh, a scam. Or you're you're a known criminal uh, and you have a criminal record then we're gonna start using some of this data and layering it on top of um, uh, this other uh information that we have that's automated by looking at the transactions and then all of this is going to kind of work together to to affect someone's score
0: very interesting yeah definitely a social layer would definitely help add on uh, and bring more trust in the ecosystem i'm, I'm curious with regards, you mentioned that something like this has happened to you before, where somebody drained your account. It's very interesting when uh, you feel the pain of something that you're building. So I, I'm i working at XMTP. We are building Web3 messaging such that, hey, no matter what social platform you use, no matter what app you use, you can carry your DMs everywhere. And now what happened last week was I got banned from Telegram. which basically meant that all my DMs on Telegram are, not, are now logged. I have no access to them. And now I can feel the pain of what's that pain when you cannot access your DMs, you don't own your DMs, stuff like that. So I'm curious, like what's the story of, what's that story where your account was hacked or scammed?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the inception of this is all, is all literally filled with a ton of scams and that's how we got here. I'm a pretty impulsive person, especially when it's late at night. And there was one day where I was on the rooftop of my building, it's like 11.30 p.m. I had just got done working like 12, 13 hour day and I'm continuing to work. I'm checking my, my Slack and I'm checking Discord while I'm working on this NFT project. And I see that I got a DM for Collabland on Discord. And at this point, I'm new. I don't, I don't really know that Discord scams are really a big thing. And what ends up happening is I click on this uh, Collabland bot, I give my uh, private keys and then I have my entire wallet drained, like $20,000 stolen. And this is when I'm brand new. I had been in the space for say two, two weeks. And the thing is, this may not have happened except for earlier that day, literally earlier that day, someone who I was working with on my team, who was kind of like an admin in the Discord, told me that he was going to set up Collabland on our Discord. And at the time, I didn't know what that was. So I was like, oh, wow, I just got this DM for Collabland. You know, he, he's so fast in setting this up. Let me, I guess, do what I need to do now. And it ends up, the same day he said he was going to set up Collabland, I am, end up getting scammed by a Collabland bot. And that's that's what happened to me. And then there's another time where there's a YouTuber, or an impersonator of a YouTuber, had three different accounts. Every account had the OG username of these big Web3 uh, YouTubers. And if I said their name, you'd probably know who they are. And long story short, really well uh, really well orchestrated scam. I was paying for influencer marketing. I ended up getting $7,000 stolen uh, by these scammers. and. There's probably three other examples of this, and one thing that you can do with Blockum is you can take in someone someone's wallet address, you can plug it into our search engine, then get their trust score. So it's like that use case of Blockum. If I had it at the time, would have helped me avoid that uh, that socially engineered scam of that person impersonating those YouTubers. And then within our community, I can I have endless stories of people in our community getting scammed. Someone impersonated my co-founder and stole thirty thousand dollars from a potential whale. Single mother came on an AMA, started bawling her eyes out, talking about how she had. All of her crypto stolen from her while well, I'm doing an AMA. Like countless examples of this, and um, the idea to actually build Blockum came from our community because they they said their biggest problem was scams. So that that's how this happened in the first place. Was between those events happened to me, our community, and my co-founders. Like, all right, someone has to do something about this.
0: That's crazy, man. And I think I I really like the way you approach it because when a scam happens, what people say is okay. Crypto is a scam. Stay away from it. But you took the other route that, hey, crypto is a scam. It's not crypto is a scam. A scam happened to me. How do we fix this? So that's really cool because I know a really good friend of mine. We both together started the UW Blockchain Club at our university. We were having a great time. And then recently, his his wallet got scammed. And now he's, he's totally like he has moved on from crypto, basically. But it's really cool that you went in to find a solution. I'm actually curious. You said that at that point of time, you were brand new, just two weeks in. And you had 20K in your wallet. What were you doing with 20K?
1: Yeah, so uh, I believe that was from the private sale of our of our NFT project. So we okay. had this private sale uh, at the beginning of the project. And uh, yeah, I had basically started an NFT project that I wanted to use to go ahead and, and basically build like a Web3 technology company. Like my idea was, okay, let's, let's create an NFT project, provide real world value. Because up to that point, I hadn't seen NFT with heavy utility and also an NFT project that appealed to entrepreneurs. So my thesis was, okay, Let's build a community of entrepreneurs and startup founders, and let's make so we provide real utility. And our utility was consulting calls that we would do every week, where we had people in our community had really successful businesses who would kind of coach other people in the community from all like different levels, um, including myself as one of the coaches in our consulting calls. And we had done a private sale with kind of my friends and my, my family. And this, um, this private sale we had done was supposed to be what was going to enable us to successfully launch our project. And it's an entire different story, but I had to get really creative with how to make our project successful because anyone who, anyone who was in the NFT space, at least at the time, and it sounds weird saying that, but this is, you know, a year and two months ago, a year and two months ago, if you had enough budget, you could sell an NFT. It was pretty much that simple. Your budget equals the outcome. And right now it's not that way at, at all. You have to, you have to really be creative and you have to do it really organically. Um, but at the time, it wasn't the case. So, yeah, that's that's how I ended up getting that much crypto in my in my wallet, which, which is just terrible. Um, that that was my first like real experience having that much crypto in my wallet, but it is what it is.
0: Right. So that was again the inflection point where you went into when you started thinking about the idea of blocking. Now, what's the story over there? What exactly happened? How did you bring your team together? How were you able to fund this entire project?
1: Yeah, great, great question. So. Basically I had started this NFT project and I made every mistake you can pretty much think of while going through this project. Um, one, I guess, philosophy that I follow is to direct to learn. So hmm. if you look at the, if you look at the best way to learn, the best way to learn is to do. So that's what I did. I said, okay, if I want to learn Web three or I, if I want to learn about this space, because the inception before that, if I just take that back is I believed in what web three could do for the future. I, as I did some research, saw that Web3 could solve a lot of the problems I'm passionate about, like censorship and these other type, type things um, that a decentralized internet would, would help prevent. And I said, okay, what, how can I get into the space? And I said, okay, well, the way I can get in the space is by starting an NFT project mm-hmm. and uh, make that project successful, build a community. And that community will support whatever we build next from this point if we create a successful project. So I started building the, the team necessary to build a successful project. And I had a marketing company called OrderingAds.com, and I took some of my employees from that company and put them over on this project. And uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, I was trying to build an AI uh, company. I was a- exploring AI, trying to build like this AI sales bot, uh, like sales chatbot. And I was looking on Upwork for these different um, developers, and I came across my co- my my now co-founder Alexa. Uh, because I noticed on the call that this person I was speaking to was very different. They they weren't like anyone else I had spoken to in Upwork, clearly a genius, extremely valuable conversation, someone I immediately want to be friends with, someone who's young, obsessed um with what they're doing. And you know, basically I start this NFT project and I hit him up midway through the project and I say, you know, get involved in what we're doing. Like check out what we're doing and get involved with what we're doing. And he what he did is he started being the main person who was almost a like customer support within our community. And his goal was to learn as much as possible about our community members to see what problems they had, to see what problems they have so that we could build a software in the future to solve those problems when when the time is right. Um, so that's, that's what he did. And he basically interviewed community members, like asking them what their biggest problems are. And someone came up with the idea, you know, for like a reputation site, like a, rep- a, a reputation site for wallets or something like that. And he mentioned the idea to me after we had sold out the project, um, this is like, four or five months in. And I'm like, that's an amazing idea. And what we kind of realized is that we both got very excited at the thought of that idea. There's, Mm. this is my advice to people because I have friends right now who have like traditional service businesses and they run ideas by me all the time. Like, how do I know if that idea is the right idea? And at least one litmus test is like, okay, when you hear this idea, does it immediately fire you up? Are you like, that's it? Like your just reaction is that's it. And if that's your reaction, then that's probably the right idea. But if you feel somewhere on the fence or some level of uncertainty, then my advice is like, it's probably not the right idea to pursue. And both right. of our reaction was super enthusiastic. You know, like we, we were just hyped about it. And Alexa had a blockchain development agency. And he took every single person who worked for that blockchain development agency doing blockchain and AI development over the past nine years. Took all of them off as uh, at, off contractor work and completely on block them. So right out the gate, we had a team of 11 people, some of which who have PhDs in natural language processing, people who've worked at Microsoft, people who worked at NVIDIA, like extremely talented people all in Serbia, where we have an office, and we all just jumped in. And we basically funded the project out of pocket from my previous company and from his previous company, because we essentially just went all in and and stopped doing what we were doing before. And that was kind of the, the inception.
0: That's very interesting. Wow. Uh, you got a solid start. What was the, can you share the total amount of funds required at the start? Like how yeah, think, much did you pooled in?
1: Yeah, I think we put in 100, $110,000 of our own money before okay. we raise money from investors. And then um, we raise money from investors, like, I don't know, three months into building this. And then we started mm-hmm. funding it with investors. So, you know, that's like 35, 40K for three, like per month for three months.
0: Right. Okay. Can you share the amount raised from VC?
1: Yeah. So we have 600K actually in the bank. And then okay. we have a little over a million right now committed. And we're working on closing out our, our seed around right now at a total of uh, 3 million. That's great, man. Congrats. Uh,
0: yeah. Okay. Perfect. And now let's talk about how were those initial days? How did you grow the product? What was going on during product development?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Where, where do I start? So I, I guess there's like certain principles that we, that we used. I, I guess here's Here's some, some context. So one thing that really gets me irritated or annoyed, it's one of those stupid things. Like we all have those stupid things that kind of irritate us, right? Like this really dumb thing. You're like, I shouldn't be mad at this, but I'm, but this is getting me like, like irritated. That thing for me over the past six years or seven years or however long has been softwares and how softwares are built. Whenever there's like, whenever I'm using a software, this is, I just, before I was even thinking about building a software, this is how my brain worked. I would always think to myself, how would I make this better? How would I make this experience better? because I would get irritated by needing to click like four extra buttons instead of being able to go straight to the, uh, the thing I wanted to do. And if you look at the way Apple products are built, everything with Apple is extremely simple. Like ex- extremely simple, you swipe up and then that's it. Like you swipe up and you're on the home screen. One click, you're in the app. You're not, it's not a big process of going from this thing to this thing, to this thing, to this thing. So one principle at the very beginning that we, that we used is like, okay, how can we make this as simple as possible? We don't want a really big sign up experience. We want to make this seamless. So one example of how we implemented this was if you download Blockum right now, we don't ask for any information. You, you click install the extension and it's installed. Like that's, that's it. You don't have to do anything else. Then it starts working for you immediately. And it pops up for you in real time. As you go to the website, as you click the mint button, it pops up, it intercepts your wallet in real time. You don't have to do anything. So the principle was like, okay, every successful product is really, really easy to use. That was the first thing we thought of. And then the second thing we thought of is like, okay, what's the best way to actually tackle this problem? Our goal is to eliminate scams. How do we go about doing that? And we ran a lot of ideas for how to actually tackle scams. And the reason why we came to the decision of having a a trust score is because a trust score works for every single wallet. And in theory, and, and contract, and can scale to every single blockchain. So in theory, if this is perfect, if the accuracy of the percentage that we're giving you is perfect, this solves every single scam because it doesn't just handle the obvious things. It also handles levels. So all the gray areas in between completely legitimate to scam, there's a lot of gray area. There's one vulnerability right. in the contract. It's a little bit weird. We can't say that's outright a scam, right? It just doesn't, it's, that, that, that's just illogical to, to say that, to jump to that conclusion. So Hmm. it needs to be, it needs to handle the different levels of gray. And that's why we uh, decided on the trust percentage. And then it's like, okay, we have the trust percentage. It's not going to be perfect at the beginning. Now we have to build these other layers on top of the percentage. So we we have to, we have to know 100% and inform the user 100% if it is an obvious scam. So it needs to be, yes, is a scam. If it's an obvious scam, like draining your wallet is irrefutably, undoubtedly, always going to be a scam like 99.9 percent of the time if it's draining your wallet so that's where the other layers came in the simulation and the blacklist and whitelist tackle the obvious cases so that's that was like step three adding these other layers and then the fourth kind of consideration is like okay well how do we actually like what's the actual uh mechanism is this going to be an extension is this going to be a search engine like what is this actually going to be and then we started thinking about the different ways that someone might get scammed So I I go to my previous experience of like, okay, I want a search engine because if I'm doing business with someone and I'm deciding whether or not I want to do business with someone before the transaction is completed, I need to be able to handle that use case. And that's where, okay, the search engine comes in. That handles that for me, I can now use that information before I do business with someone. It's like, okay, we've handled that. Then the even bigger one was real-time scam blocking. Because if you look at just the different tools in the space right now, most tools in the space are some form of analytics tools or the thing most people are using is etherscan and if you go to etherscan basically what you're doing is you're trying to look through all the transactions and you're basically like a human calculator like the human brain is not really that great at crunching numbers the computer and ai is really good at crunching numbers so if you're looking at etherscan trying to find a scam and that's your search engine then like if you're experienced then maybe you can see those transactions like my co-founder and you can say okay that's definitely a scam i can tell because this transaction this transaction this transaction and he's a literal genius with 170 iq and he's pretty damn good at math okay so like he can do it in an instant because that's how he's built but like right. if you're new in the space and you're the most vulnerable person that's not gonna work for you you're not gonna be able to go to either scan just immediately no so that's where it's like okay this needs to block the scam in real time like ad blocker blocks ads and mm-hmm. it's convenient for you you don't have to do any thinking and like the human brain is designed to, to save energy Like that's what the brain is designed to do like at what we see in the world is, is just the brain like processing every, everything down to just what's necessary in that moment. So if you're thinking about how, you know, your, your girlfriend is mad at you while you're doing transactions, you're going to forget to do research because your brain is preoccupied by this thing that's making you fearful while you're like, while you're doing a transaction and you're going to make bad decisions. It's like no human is just completely logical. So we need that real-time scam blocking to like, you know, cover when you're, when your brain isn't fully focused in the moment. And, you know, then we can talk about other things. Like we thought about the branding It needs to be really simple and it needs to be really clean. One thing that really irritated us about things in web three in general. And we still, this is still a big problem is that the user experience of most things just sucks. And one thing sure. sucks is because it's so cluttered. You go to all these, yeah. like you use all these tools and it's so cluttered. There's all these numbers like on the screen, all this unnecessary information, like you know, like if you're brand new, for example, you don't know what gas meant. You don't know what gas means. Like at the beginning, I didn't know what gas meant and I was trying to complete transactions with my MetaMask and I didn't know I needed to add more crypto. I needed to add the maximum amount of gas than the gas they're telling me. So it's like, I need to add the maximum amount of gas, but I I don't know that I need to add the maximum. I have the minimum it's telling me I need to add and the maximum is always changing. So I need to keep adding more crypto to my wallet. So that makes it really inefficient. And it spent me like two hours to mint my first NFT because I didn't know, like, I didn't know what I was doing wrong.
0: So exactly. Like, exactly. Christian, I had the same problem when I was like, wait, the, I have Twitter blue subscription, which means I can now have that hexagonal profile picture. But how do I get it? Like, I want to use my own profile picture, which is the existing profile picture. I just wanted to, to make it into an NFT. How do I do it? I have no idea. It's so bad. It's so bad. I finally figured it out yesterday. But yeah, anyways, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So like, that's a, that's a like perfect, perfect example. So there's a bunch of things just like that, that we are like, Because this is, I guess like one of Warren Buffett's favorite books is a book called Outsiders. At least I think that's what it's called. And basically the premise, or I think it's outliers or outsiders, I think it should be
0: outliers, Yeah, it is outliers, yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 you got it. So like the premise of that entire book, I I read it, but I'm terrible with like names. Um, The premise of that book is like, it's like 10 CEOs who stock outperformed because they're, they're not from that industry. And my co-founder and I are not from Web3. We're not like quote unquote D gens we're not crypto bros. I don't have that much crypto in my wallet. And some people are listening to this and they're gasping and they're like, that's blasphemy. But we believe, we don't believe in the speculative, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this, but we personally do not believe in the speculative aspects of the crypto space. I think if that's what you do, then amazing, like do what you want to do. For us, what we believe in is the ways to use the blockchain to actually like, to to make the world a better place. I want people in web two to decide to come to web three because there's something better about web three that Web 2.0 doesn't do. And right now, it's really hard to say we're at that point, but if you think five or 10 or 15 years down the line, enough smart people and enough money pouring into a space, you're eventually going to have that be the case. Like That's what Elon Musk says. It's like the technology does not advance itself. It advances when a lot of smart people, a lot of money, and a lot of hard work is poured into something. It doesn't just happen on its own. And Web 3.0 seems to be lots of hard, like people working very hard, that's a money pouring into space. So I guess all of this to say, we wanted to build something that's easy for, for anyone, especially new people who are most susceptible to be able to use it. And that was kind of a, the different principles we used to kind of make the decisions on, on the product.
0: That's very interesting, man. This, this is super helpful. I'm curious, you mentioned about the gray area. So what should a user make of these trust scores? When it says 97%, okay, I know that it's safe. When it says 5%, uh, I'm guessing I shouldn't transact with that person. But what does the mid-gray area mean? So if a wallet scores 63%, what does that mean? What's the insight for the user? Should they send? Should they transact with them or not?
1: Yeah, great, great question. And our advice is to, if it, especially if it's in a gray area. So a gray area is like from say like 40% to say 65%, you definitely want to do your own research at the same time as you're using Blockup. In fact, that's my recommendation just in general. Right now, we have 97% accuracy in detecting scams. And just in the, in the score, we're giving uh, projects if it's definitely a scam or uh, definitely a good project. But the AI is imperfect as it is right now. It's really good at detecting the obvious things, but it still needs to learn in order to get the 99.9% where you can completely say, okay, Blockum has such high trust score. Whatever it gives me is like, I can really trust that. Almost 100%. And even, even still then, I'd still advise you to do your own research. So I guess long story short, if it says 40%, what that means is there's something, there's something questionable within that project's contract or within that person's transactions. It's not overtly a scam, but there might be a bunch of vulnerabilities in the contract, for example. And if that's the case, my recommendation is if it's an NFT project, go in the Discord, like do the things you'd usually do. Go in the Discord, look at Etherscan yourself, talk to other people, talk to the project founder and see if they have a long-term vision. Who else is involved in the project? What are their, what are their track records? And some of this will, some of this will also get improved as we add someone's like real world, um, like reputation to block So we know, say for example, if this, if someone who owns this wallet, like has an IP address associated with a scam and they created a brand new wallet and this brand new wallet they just created is associated with that same IP address as the previous new wallet they created. So then we'd be able to say automatically that this new wallet is a scam because of that that IP address. And as I continue to kind of like talk in this direction, I just want to give you like our internal conversations and how we're thinking about this. So one thing we could do like immediately is add know your customer information directly Mm -hmm. to block them. So that's this person's real world identity adding it to this. And we, we don't really think we want to do that even though it would improve our accuracy because the purpose of web three in the first place is it for it to be decentralized and not to use people's personal data against them. It's one thing if we're looking at someone's transactions and then block them gets to 99.9%, which it's going to get there because of the amount of data we're feeding it. Like we recently got a big integration with Mises browser, which is 300,000 users. And that's going to feed a lot of data, which is going to allow us to improve the, the algorithm. So we'd rather like let it be not 100% perfect and kind of like, Keep collecting more data to get it to that point instead of saying, we're going to do what Coinbase is doing, requiring someone's ID, require someone's personal information. And then that's just kind of like, that's, that's not really what Web3 is supposed to be. You know what I'm saying? That's like more Web 2.2 or something. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to be like the government taking someone's information and then using it against them. We'd rather like the transactions, no one knows who's behind that transaction. We'll inform you and then you can use that decision to say what you want to do.
0: That's very interesting for you to think about it, that we just want to, I think this is something that became super valuable conversation, even at XMTP, that, hey, your activity comes before your identity. The people you transact with, the type of transactions you have, the way you interact, that's more important than... How much money you have and how much money you have? What's your uh, like, you know, what's your status in the society? Stuff like that. What's your last name? What's your location? All that stuff. So that's very interesting way to think about it. Hmm. I'm actually really curious. So you mentioned about one thing that I was thinking about was smart contracts. So you can also put a smart contract address over there and see if that smart contract has been designed uh, with any vulnerabilities or not yeah just curious can you talk more about that like how does that work and if there are backdoors if there are some uh intentional backdoors that are created by the creator that we can keep a track of
1: yeah i'll speak on this the best i can um from my understanding as being someone who's non technical so if someone's technical is listening to this might be sa- might say tristan that's not how it works what you're saying is stupid and you might be you might be right this is just my understanding i guess we have people on on the team who are You know geniuses and they they understand better than me but to my best understanding right so you can look up a smart contract right now on etherscan and you can read the contract and when you read the contract if you're a developer you can take a look at that contract and you can find things that should be a red flag for example you being able to burn all your nfts you can see that by looking through and reading someone's contract now for most people if you try to do that you're you're probably going to miss something or you know you're you're not going to read it completely correctly or it's going to take you a lot of time but if you're a developer you can take a look at, it, at the smart contract like right away just by going to EtherScan and clicking read contract and you can find some things that might be a red flag to you it's just going to take you some time to do that right so there's a uh, like a software development like language or like field of study called natural language processing and basically that's the uh that's the taking words and then uh, within those words, finding like a meaning or finding some type of context or whatever it is from those words. So basically we're like looking at that contract and then we're we're reading the contract and then we're finding the vulnerability. Like for example, there's a mechanism for that person to burn everyone's NFTs at any moment. And then now Blockum is incorporating that information into the trust score. And when I was talking about the rule-based AI earlier, that's part of uh, what goes into the the rule-based AI is okay. Here's all the things that could be a potentially uh, indicative of this being a scam, based off of uh, based off of like our experience in contracts that tend to be scams. And then at the same time, the self-learning AI has been fed lots of scam uh, contracts, like that are irrefutably 100% a scam. We know this is a scam. It's designed to drain your wallet, or it was a rug pull and this is also where it gets even more complicated because now we have to take the, the data and then we have to separate it. So we have to separate the rug pools from the wallet drainers. And then it has to learn, say, uh, what, what does a rug pool look like versus what is does a, a wallet drainer look like? What are the differences in the contracts? And it needs to find trends in the wallet drainers, which is kind of like very obvious. And then less obvious is the trends in the rug pools. So like what are the, what, because this is where it becomes challenging in actually, like, in actually building the perfect system. Because sometimes the founders do everything right, and then they still flop, and the project still, you know, ends up eventually burning all the uh, all the holders of the project, right? So then we have to kind of manually go and we have to look and say, like, okay, did these guys purposefully? Pull out of this project and fail this project purposefully? Or did they non-purposefully do this and like they just didn't sell any? And then people were pissed off because they couldn't sell, because the project actually was just a bad project. But some people believed in it. And like that's the reason why this failed. Do we consider that a rug pull? Like that's where this becomes really challenging. And that's where the like the heaviest lifting on our team is actually the data, is actually looking at the data and then labeling the data. Like that's the most challenging part of this entire thing very labor intensive because it requires an actual human being using their judgment, trying to assess this. And like, that's, I guess, a little bit into how like we look at a contract and then say, okay, how do we, how do we like say this, like what this contract score is?
0: Got it. 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 I think one very interesting thing is simply the fact that because every activity is on chain, there's just so much good data out there that we could use to study, to build models, to analyze and predict potentially so that's a very interesting thing now what i'm curious about is that okay for people who are new for non-technical people who are new to this entire web3 crypto scene they have no idea what a smart contract is they would never go and even put uh, a yeah. search up that okay if this uh, contract has any red flags or not uh, most people don't even know about blocking like i found about blockim three days ago so in your mind what is the ideal ideal user experience where a user comes in, they're about to transact, They that's when they understand that, wait, the account that you're about to transact with that has a low trust score, be cautious about it. So what is the ideal user experience that you have in your mind with Blockim?
1: Yeah. So I guess the user experience that we have right now is probably 70 or 80% of the way. And then it's like the remaining kind of like 30% is like the hardest part. A couple different, uh, a couple different things. So number one, the ultimate goal is to have Blockham be integrated into every or the majority of Web3 uh, products. So the majority of Web3 softwares that are processing transactions have Blockham be integrated into them. Because if you're using Binance, if you're using Coinbase and you're using it to to send crypto to someone um, like from Coinbase, or you're using MetaMask, if Blockham popped up within um within these products, then now we would almost eliminate the we would eliminate like 70 to 80 percent of scams probably right off the bat so that's that's ideal however that's going to be challenging to do and we're working on it but let's just say from another side of things so someone actually downloads blockum and they're using blockum if blockum was perfect if blockum was perfect and blockum not only was a uh, extension but Blockham also, this is the other thing that Blockum does, but it, it could be even better, is that there's a wallet address on your screen. So let's just say you're scrolling through on your computer. Um, it'll actually automatically highlight that wallet address or that contract address and give you the trust score without Blockum even opening up. Hmm. So Blockum does that right now. We still need to do that on mobile. So we need to move everything that Blockum does on the mobile. We need the trust scoring to be, you know, as close to 100% as possible. And... That includes a new scams because there's new creative scams popping up all the time. And whatever new scams are popping up, it's hard to say whether the way the system's currently built, it's going to be able to solve every single scam that pops up because scammers keep getting more, uh, more creative. So Blockham needs to keep learning, which it's learning it, the way Blockham scores someone is based off the transactions. So like if, if the transactions are a, a red flag, like there's a red flag in those transactions. There's almost no way for someone to hide that. But let me just give you an example, creative example of how a scammer could game the system. But I don't know if I should do that, but that would give people bad ideas. <laughs> um, it, this would be hard to do. So I'm just assuming no one's going to do this. But let's just say someone went ahead and had a million dollars to spend. And they basically created a, a thousand different wallets on a bunch of computers from all around the world. And it had... Whatever amount in each wallet, and then all minted an NFT contract from each of these different wallets all around the world, and it looked le- it looked legitimate because everything was fine in the co- fine in the contract. But then they actually use that to sell NFTs, and this is a strategy people do already: is they like do a bunch of trading with their own wallets on OpenSea back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, to pump up the floor, to pump up the amount of holders, to trick you. Um, so if someone basically did that strategy but on steroids then that's potentially something that Blockham wouldn't be able to stop. So it's like, we have to be able to conquer all these different edge cases, get close to 100% as possible, be able to pop up anytime you do a transaction, which we do, you know, basically right now, except for if you're on your phone. So we need to go on phone. And then we need to integrate with all these different crypto uh, fintechs, these, all these different Web3 softwares. And then here's the other thing. I mean, if we're really getting creative, one way scammers scam is they actually call someone and they call you and they say, hey, like, I'm a, they call you pretending to be the IRS or something. And they say, you send Bitcoin to this wallet. And I mean, Blockum might be able to detect that. I haven't, I haven't tested it, but that might be something Blockum could detect. Yeah, we might already detect that. But like, you see where my mind is going. Like you have to be really creative about all these edge cases. And you ask me like, what would Blockum look like in a perfect world? That's, that's like, what it would look like in a perfect world is those things I just said. And we have to keep thinking and finding new scams, which is part of what our team does. Anytime our team finds a new scam, we retrain block. It's a constant ongoing process. So yeah, that's, I guess that's my answer.
0: Very interesting. How do you? Uh, what have you seen as a good source to learn more about the new creative scams out there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's a source necessarily because once you find out it's a scam, it means you've probably been scanned Hmm. and you know that's actually that brings up a good idea i think so this this is the other thing you just kind of reminded me of so one feature we recently built is something called block profiles so block profiles is basically like your web3 identity you basically can uh, create your custom link and then send that custom link to anyone and it has your trust score It has how many NFTs you own, what NFTs you own. You can follow someone. You can see what trades they're doing. It's kind of like a web three social media that anyone can create. And one thing we want to do is keep adding features to this and building it out and just keeping uh, like continuously building it out and making it better and better and better. And one idea we actually had is adding a newsfeed to profiles. And if anyone's listening to this, tell me if you think this is a good idea, like DM us and just let us know. We want to add a newsfeed where you can actually see. Like, let's just say, for example, tweets about a specific company. So Blockum actually did detect an FTX wallet as being a scam before it, it happened. Um, we actually had an investor, like an investor type in FTF, FTX wallet into Blockum, and it gave them like a 8% trust score or something. However, wow. <laughs> however there might be scams looming that we don't detect. I don't, I don't know if we detected BlockFi, like BlockFi collapsing. I don't know if we detected that. So what we could do is we could have, we could aggregate all the tweets about a project, negative and positive, and then you can look through what the users are saying or what people are speculating about. So for example, like there was speculation before FTX uh, filed for bankruptcy about them being a, uh, like there being problems with FTX, right? There's a lot of speculation on Twitter. So if Blockum aggregated all that speculation and then put it like within our user experience, so you could like... You would type in a project and you could see what people are saying immediately. Then you can now take the speculation and combine it with Blockum, and now you have like a combination of like user validation and also Blockum looking at the like empirical evidence which is the transactions and then use that information together to, to like make those decisions.
0: Very interesting. Wow. Tristan, I believe that we just skimmed over a very important aspect, a very important story with FTX can we dive deeper into it yeah absolutely, absolutely. what exactly happened who did you tell uh, about it and what were their reactions i'm guessing you guys knew about this two months before everything unfolded
1: yeah it's it's funny because like at the time we we're, we're on this investor meeting and i don't even remember the name of the uh, the name of the vc but this this lady like told us on the meeting cuz she's playing around like most vcs before they get on a call with us they play around with wacom and they just like type in their own wallet they type in like whatever, whatever they're thinking about, different projects they've, they've invested in, what have you. So a VC, I don't know if they invested in FTX or they were, they just like were skeptical about FTX. I don't know what the reasoning is because I haven't talked to them since, but they came on the meeting to us and they said, Hey, I typed in this FTX wallet and like, I think it's, it was either a wallet of Sam Bankman-Fried or employee of, of FTX. And they say like, Hey, this, you know, gave it a 8% trust score. And then at the time we're kind of embarrassed because we're like, 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 why is like why is it saying it, like it's a scam? And we're kind of like, and I think my co-founder actually responded because he's like, he feels really embarrassed when things like this happen because he's the technical co-founder. He feels personally responsible. And he's like, yeah, like we're still improving the algorithm, you know, w- like whatever else. And then lo and behold, a couple months go by and <laughs> it turns out to actually be a scam. And then I I like I hadn't thought about this this, I just like, I don't even remember this call with the VC. And then Alexa says to me, oh yeah, I told them on the Twitter space about, um, about what happened with the VC call, uh, in the wallet. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then he reminds me of that call we had with the VC. And like, he retold me the story because my, my mind erased it. I I have so many meetings. It's just like, I don't remember what happens in them 70% of the time. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Like I said that myself, like, well, that's crazy. I can't believe we we did that, but, but yeah. That's
0: very really interesting. I think one idea that came to my mind right now is, I think you already talked about profile. One interesting thing to do would be that, like it's very really hard to constantly think about that. Okay, let's try, uh, here's AI. Let's try to put the wallet address of Sang Backman-Fried. Let's try to put wallet address of my brother. Uh, rather, what if we have a profile and it ranks from lowest trust score to highest trust score, every wallet that we have ever transacted with. And that would be very interesting to know uh, because now people can actually come back and they can actually interact and engage more rather than like thinking about it. Uh, and especially in the chat GPT world, like, you know, asking questions have become way more important and imagination have become way more important. But and that's the hardest part. People, it's really hard for people to, uh, people don't want to think. People don't want to uh, think a lot. They just want right there everything. So it would be great to have a profile, personal profile on Block Him for every wallet. Yeah.
1: I mean that's a that's an amazing idea. No, I I love that. Yeah, if you could just look through and and see like a ranking of people you've you've done business with and what their trust score is, so you can exactly avoid doing business with them again. Yeah, that's 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 genius.
0: That's like a twenty twenty two rabbed, like Spotify rap for Blockham.
1: <laughs> yeah, like, no, that's great. We, every
0: year you release that. Okay, your brother, I who you transact a lot with, I think they are into some fishy transactions.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's no, that's amazing.
0: Yeah. It would be very interesting. Like telling you about the wallets that you engage with the most, but also have the lowest trust score. You should reevaluate your friendship with this person.
1: <laughs> right, right, yeah. That, that, that anonymous dude in the Discord who's like, he's really active in the Discord and he's like saying all these nice things about me on these Twitter spaces, but I, have, I don't even know his real name. Oh, uh, well, 7%. Exactly,
0: exactly. That's crazy. Uh, I'm curious, how do you guys come up with a name, Block him. What's the story?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh... I'm pretty sure our you, this is the, this is like the beauty of having amazing people on your team. Like I, up to the story, up to this point, I think I've told the story from maybe mostly my and co-founder's perspective, but like team's the one who's working hard and like doing all, doing all the hard work on the product. So our, our girl, Serna, who does all the UI UX, she's amazing. Like I, most people will tell you if they look at our UX, it's, and like, it's, I mean, not, I'm obviously biased, but like-
0: It's beautiful. It is beautiful. It's very intuitive. It's beautiful. And it doesn't look like it's uh, being built by a Web3 company that just wants your money.
1: All right. Yeah. Great. Great way of putting it. Yeah. She, she, she came up with a name or she came up with a couple names and like, it, it just, it makes complete sense. I mean, it's, it's honestly genius that she came up with it because it, it's just like, it makes sense. Like, we're just going to block them. I like, guess what block them does. We're going to block them. It's like, hmm. yeah, she, she just like came up with that and I was like, yeah, that makes complete sense. Let's do that.
0: That's very interesting. I absolutely love like when the product describes the the action and the value of the product itself. Like yesterday I was thinking that, okay, I posted a tweet and I found that somebody unfollowed me. I'm like, oh shit, who unfollowed me? And I searched up, is there, is there a tool that can tell me who unfollowed me? And there's literally a tool called who unfollowed.me. And I'm like, I love this. I love this. It's like the entire user, the value proposition of the product is in the name itself. And that's beautiful.
1: Dude, I know. I I totally I totally agree with that. I think I was debating with my friend this the other day. Um, that's why we have we have the company Airlius, which is the name of the holding <laughs> company. And like Aurelius, we chose that name because we I believe a lot in stoicism, if you know the philosophy of stoicism. Yeah. And Marcus Aurelius, my my co-founder's Serbian Aurelius is a Greek name and he he really likes Greek names, and then Air. Er, because like we have big goals and we want to go in the air, so it's like we created this very philosophical name for the holding company, that that really encapsulates the vision, but doesn't explain exactly what we're doing. Like Apple, right? But iPhone, like it tells you exactly what you're doing. Like Apple is just is just a word, and there's actually like someone did a study on this, or if you just look at a bunch of companies, they used to, they used a name like the, re, the way Jeff Bezos came up with Amazon is because Amazon is big, like the Amazon is massive, but also because the phone book or the website used to rank like links by like alphabetical order or whatever the context was, something was alphabetical order. And he chose the A and you want the name of the holding company also to be easy to, to say. So like if the name of the company isn't easy to say, then like that's going to hurt you because your, your name matters. And then the actual product, 100%, you want the product to actually like, there's two things. You want the product, you want to just know kind of what it does from the name. And then also you want that word to become a verb. Like the one of the most mm. like one book I read is a twenty seven powers of persuasion, and in that book one of the principles is own own words. So you want to own the word. And the example they use in the book is how uh, I think Best Buy or Geek Squad before is owned by Best Buy. Create the word Geek Squad, and they call the people on their team geeks because they wanted to own that word. So people mm. would say, "Oh, I want to call it geek." And right now people say, "Oh, I want to Uber." Like Uber means nothing, but now people use it because some, they paid a rapper. I'm pretty sure they paid the rapper. I don't know if they've admitted this, but they paid a rapper to create Uber everywhere. And they dropped that word and they dropped that song. And now everyone's saying, I'm gonna Uber, right? They, they took a verb and then they blew it up in a, in a song, which is like a ninja marketing strategy. But like eventually the ideal world's like, I'm blocking them. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna block them or we blocked them. Like that's what I, that's what I want to, to happen. Uh, that's, like, that's like marketing gold, if you can like achieve that level, which I'm not sure we're there yet, but maybe we can get there eventually.
0: Totally, man. The moment you said stoicism, Marcus Aurelius, I was just, I just thought about this, that Ryan Holiday recently on Lens Protocol, he liked my post, he collected my post, and I think he mirrored my post.
1: (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So
0: I definitely listened to Ryan Holiday quite a bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. that's That's a great philosophy. A lot of, a lot of it's missing from, from the present world for sure.
0: Definitely. Now, I think one thing I'm really curious about is the fact that you are not, you and your team is not based in Silicon Valley or in the Western world. You are in Europe and you, you said Serbia is the entire team is, is in Serbia.
1: So I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, but I'm the okay. only, I'm the only okay. team member. I'm one of two team members in the United States. Everyone else okay. is all around the world, half of the team is in Serbia.
0: Okay. Got it. How do you think that is different? And does that affect the way you guys think about Web3?
1: Yeah. I mean, this is one thing that I, uh, that I love is I love working with people that are all around the world. Mm -hmm. This is like, this is uh, personally, I love traveling and I am very interested by other cultures and just like in my free time, one thing I do is I just look up different cultures or I learn about different cultures. Um, and having a remote team allows me to indulge a lot of those curiosities. So that's like one just selfish reason. Is just like I'm learning. Like I have a I have a graphic designer in Pakistan, and then I have a, a partnership manager who's in in India, and I don't need to tell you how the governments feel about each other. So mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, I'm asking them questions like, just, <laughs> "How do you feel about how do you feel about like Steve?
0: Or, uh, When the graphic designer has a debate with the partnership manager,
1: <laughs> the, the the thing is like they're uh they don't uh they've never argued or anything like that they're not like hyper nationalist or anything like that. they just think it's funny when I say that to them mm-hmm. but it's just like you know i I love learning about those those types of uh th- types of things that's like the selfish reason and then the strategic reason is like companies with diverse viewpoints win companies that all have like a hive mind of people who all think the same way those companies are far less successful than companies who they have people who have all different types of experiences. So as a result of those different types of experiences, they're able to bring different perspectives to what you're doing. Everybody talks about diversity of like of skin color or of race within a company, which it doesn't really sit right with me, but no one really talks about diversity in perspectives and ideas or cultures. People don't really talk about that. But that's actually the more valuable type of diversity instead of trying to force a certain type of diversity, not to get political or something, but this is just how I think about it. Um, now, the other reason as well is our hiring strategy is something called discount geniuses. Because the reality is you can be in any country, any country around the world and be a genius, any right. country in the world and be a genius. It's not like hiring someone. It's like the perception has been like, okay, if I hire someone in the United States, I'm going to get a higher quality, uh, higher quality person or something. Right. And that's just like, like how did you come to that conclusion you know like why do you think that if you hire someone in Germany they're going to be better than someone who's like in the Philippines or something like it it just it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense so our strategy is to find the best people in the world and if the world is where you're hiring from there's more geniuses in the world than there are in your country so if if you're if your criteria is the entire world and you just wanna find the person with the most merit in the entire world, then you're gonna have a really great team and you might just get lucky. And we, like the cost of living in say Serbia is like one third, depending upon where you're living, I'm making a generalization, than in the United States. And we're paying someone more than 95% of the local jobs, unless you get a job at Microsoft. And we have people who've right. quit, the highest paying job to work for less salary for our company because they believe in the mission and because they didn't even know what they were doing with that money and it's it's less fulfilling for them and the amount we're paying them is like more than 95% of the population is making anyway. So it's just like, we get an amazing person on our team. They get a job with a great mission. And as a team, we get... A variety of different perspectives, which makes us better as a team. Now there's challenges with having a remote team, but that's, that's like our, that's like our mindset about, about it. That's like why we, why we do it.
0: This is called a beautiful arbitrage.
1: <laughs> yeah, you, you could
0: put it that way. <laughs> but I like the term Uh I believe, I believe there are so many opportunities right now for, for people in just the let's say the developing countries, like I belong to India, I'm from a developing country. And there was a time when these opportunities weren't open and now the opportunities are open and it's beautiful because people, not everybody wants to leave their family and move abroad and live alone and try to force themselves to immerse in a new culture. Some people just want to stay in India and, and in the country where they belong to. What if they can stay there and still get access to the world's best opportunities? That's what everybody wants. And that's now is being possible with crypto, with fast payments and with remote jobs. The only thing that's left for us to talk about is, so you mentioned that you read 15 books a month. Let's talk about that. What are the things that you're interested in? I'll also mention one book that I was just reading right now, which was beautiful, amazing book. But yeah, you go ahead first.
1: Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so I guess my my strategy is... Uh... And this is a strategy came over like three years ago. So I, I started taking this course by a guy named Jim Quick. And basically it was a speed, speed reading course. And I was fascinated by speed reading. It sounded like a, like a almost like a superpower. Just to Just be able to download information in your brain faster. So I, I took this course by him. Learned all these strategies about the speed reads. Started practicing it. And I kept thinking to myself like, okay, how do I optimize this? How do I like improve my reading even more? And like the obvious thing is like, okay, well, what is my goal? Like, who do I want to become? And I don't... I mean, uh, the non-capitalists are not going to like hearing this. But my goal is to become a billionaire. And the reason why I want to become a billionaire is because I genuinely believe the best way to make an impact on the world is by creating a company that does good for the world. And the reason why a company needs to do it is because a company is self-sustaining. If you have a non-profit... A nonprofit needs to constantly door knock to get money and mm-hmm. its product isn't, it's not like, it's not an efficient use of resources and it's not self-sustaining and the actual product, an actual product usually, in my opinion, would change people's lives more than a nonprofit would. So for example, if you built a company, if you were like looking at um, like a country that has no sewage system, well, a company that sells a sewage system to the government and has the capabilities to do that is going to do more good than putting money into into buckets and then putting buckets around the city in replacement of a sewage system that's going to do less of an impact and a nonprofit does not have the capability to do that they have to then take that money and then pay the sewage the the sewage company that can then create that within that country and that's not an efficient use of resources because you could just go directly to the sewage c- company and then you could have the other half of that money be used for for good. Um, just as an example, right? So that is that is at least like my thought process on why I want to become a billionaire. So of course, since that's my goal, what I did is I tried to reverse engineer the achievement of my, my goal. So what I did is I used this website called mostrecommendedbooks.com and it's all books recommended by billionaires. And I... I picked a billionaire, bought all the books they recommended, and if a billionaire recommends a book, it probably changed their life. So I think I started with Charlie Munger. I bought all of Charlie Munger's recommended books. And the thing about the books that billionaires read, and this is one common thing, and most successful people in the world, philosophers have said this, Charlie Munger says this, Elon Musk says this, is that what you want to do is you wanna learn as much as possible. You wanna be something called, Google calls it being T-shaped. You wanna learn as much as possible in a, in a wide range of disciplines. And you wanna get all the major principles in a wide range of disciplines. But then you wanna go really deep in a few disciplines. And eventually, I mean, it stops looking like a T and it starts looking like a really long M or something. So if you, this is like just going on a tangent, one thing I've noticed about Elon Musk and one of the reasons why he's able to create $5 billion companies that are innovating in different areas which is just, irref- it's like irrefutable. You don't have to like a person to acknowledge what they're doing successfully. Um, you can hate someone and learn from them. Um, just saying, if you're in that boat. And no, that's,
0: that's a good disclaimer.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, good, yeah, there we go. Um, but he has gone, now he's gone very wide and he's also gone very deep. He's gone deeper, he's gone wider and deeper into more areas and he's integrated more areas of expertise in all these different areas and to just give an example, one of his early, like his first company was a software development company, uh, which was basically like yellow pages for the internet. Okay. So that requires a lot of software development skills. And he built all these software development skills, like by by um, doing software engineering as a kid. And Elon Musk also read two books a day as a kid, according to his brother, Kimball. So he read two books a day, got a wide range of, wide range of knowledge from that. Then he learned a ton about software engineering because he fell in love with the computers and he sold his first game at like 11 or some, some age like that. And then he started a company in software engineering. Okay. So that's what he did for like 20 years. Then he said, like, he, he also was just naturally very good at engineering. Like that's how his mind works. So there is, there's a ton of it's nature and nurture. People are, are like, oh, he's born so lucky. Like, okay, there, that's the nature part. What about the nurture part? There's a nature and the nurture, right? If, if like the nurture part is what you do. The nature part is the circumstances you're born in and where you place yourself. So I guess all of this to say that he went deep in software engineering, went deep in AI, went deep in engineering, went deep in product, went deep in all these different areas to the point where he's able to get rockets to land themselves, which is something governments have not even been able to do. So all of this to say that my reasoning for reading what I read is because I want to be as T-shaped as possible. I want to go deep in the areas I need to go deep in while also having a wide range of knowledge so I can take that and I can, I can have a more informed opinion that's closer to the truth when I'm reasoning because I'm able to look at things from first principles instead of looking at things from ignorance or from analogy. Because I can look to history. I can look to futurism. I can look to AI. I can look to psychology. I can look to these different areas. And then I can reason from the closest to the truth as I can because of this. Like, because of these different areas that I'm reading it. At least that's that's my goal.
0: Very interesting, man. I believe that today I went to Indigo. Not sure if you know. I'm guessing you know about Indigo, right?
1: No, I, I don't. What is what is that?
0: So Indigo Franchise is basically just like a bookstore, but instead of just making it a bookstore, it's like all the extra home essential stuff as well, all the candles and perfumes and like everything for everything for home, everything for ladies to make sure that it's it has a vibe where you come and you read and it has a very welcoming vibe uh, rather than just being a bookstore where nerds sit and like, you know, read. So I went there. I, I I usually go there with some friends and we sit down, we read a book and then just talk about that book to each other. And today I'm just so excited because I read so many amazing titles today. I found so many amazing titles like I, I'll send you this later on. But the book that I ended up reading and the book that I'm really excited about is this one. The Man Who Sold the Market, How Jim Simmons Launched the Quant Revolution. So it's about Jim Simmons, who basically uh, is the father of algorithmic trading. So there was a time when people relied on intuition, just like Warren Buffett. He relies on intuition and reading and stuff like that to for value investing. But Jim Simmons was like, hey, I'm a mathematician. Let's collect all the data. Let's make complex mathematical models. Let's use all the algorithms that we have learned about in trading. And let's make money while we are sleeping. And that's how He built Renaissance, Renaissance, I don't know how to pronounce that, Renaissance, whatever fund, and they had an average return of 66% per year, which is like, what is 66%? Like, that's insane to think about. And I believe his uh, net worth was 23 billion recently. So, and in total, that entire fund has made around $100 billion. So very interesting story.
1: Nice. Yeah, I've not heard of that. So I'll have to, you'll have to send that to me later so I can buy that.
0: Definitely, definitely. All right, man, Tristan, this was a really good conversation. I believe we should definitely do this again when blocking closes more money and we are close to that billion dollar net worth. But yeah, thanks so much for hopping on.